Good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great this uh, Labor Day weekend. If you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 6. I don't do a lot of uh, fire and brimstone kind of sermons, but this, uh, this text is pretty intimidating today. It's a very violent text, so I want to open with an interesting uh, illustration. So one of my favorite books uh, that's not theological is The Art of War by Sun Tzu. All right, I've read it three times. I love it. It's fascinating. It's not just about how to defeat enemies in ancient battle or something like that. Businessmen read it. Athletes read it. It really does a good job of teaching you how to beat people at stuff. And so it's a book that I really enjoy. Now, Sun Tzu was this famous military strategist, and there's a story that is a true story, probably mixed in with a little bit of legend. But Sun Tzu was hired by the king of Wu, which is this ancient region in China. And the king of Wu wanted Sun Tzu to come and make his army great. His army was not as good as some of his rivals, so he had heard of this great military general, this great military strategist named Sun Tzu. And so he invited him to his court where the king was going to interview him. And the king at one point, when Sun Tzu is standing in his court, the king asked him, can you really take my kind of ragtag army and make them a formidable fighting force? And Sun Tzu crosses his arms and boldly says, I could make soldiers out of your concubines. I could make soldiers out of your kind of Chinese version of geishas. Oftentimes kings would have a harem back then. And so Sun Tzu says, I could make soldiers out of your concubines. And so the king looks at him and he's, He's intrigued by this, and so Sun Tzu turns to the concubines in the court, and he says, get in a line. And they laugh, and they giggle, and they probably use those little fans they have, right? They don't listen to Sun Tzu. And so in one motion, Sun Tzu takes his sword, pulls it out, cuts off one of their heads, puts it back in, and says, I said, get in a line. And they instantly get in a line. And Sun Tzu turns to the king and says, if a general gives orders that are unclear and they're not followed, it's the fault of the general. But if the orders are clear and they're not followed, it is the fault of the soldier. And my orders were explicitly clear. And he was hired to be the general on the spot. Okay? Now, if you think, that's kind of an extreme example. If you're a visitor here today and you think, do sermons at Parkway always start out with decapitations? The answer is yes. That's just what we do. Now, the reason that I give this violent example is because the text is going to give us a violent example. In my example, only one person died. In the text, we're going to see that thousands and thousands and thousands of people get killed because of the wrath of God. And in the same way that they have to go through pain so the other people realize that God is serious, those other ladies realize that Sun Tzu is serious, this example had to be made, this violent example, so that they might do what they're supposed to do, we're going to see that same kind of idea here in the text. So let's pray, and then we will get into a difficult and violent text. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even the difficult parts are inspired by you, that these are things that we are to know, these are things that we are to cherish, these are things that are meant to warn us. You love us. At the end of the day, you don't want what happened to Israel falling in the wilderness to happen to us. So would you help us in these things? We love you and thank you. It's for Christ's name and glory that we pray. Amen. Now let's look at verse 6. Here's where he starts. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Okay, we got to set a little context here. What are these things? These things refer to the verses that are just above this, to the, the lesson that uh, Jared gave last week. Let's look at these verses here, verses 1 through 5. It says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. 
and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Literally, it says that their bodies were scattered. The idea is that people are dropping like flies. And this is written as a warning to us, what? To not desire evil as they did. Individual acts of sin offend God. Individual acts can be sinful. But those individual acts flow from an evil desire. The ultimate issue is a sin issue. The ultimate issue is a heart issue. When Adam and Eve sin against God, all humans born after that, with the exception of Jesus, who's miraculously virgin-born, all humans after that are going to be born tainted and broken and dead and bent towards sin. You are not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you are by nature a sinner. And so this is going to be a text to say, don't commit these acts, but ultimately the problem behind all these acts is something deeper. It's a heart issue, which is why we are not to, quote, desire evil as they did. Look at verse 7. Here's our first sin that we often commit. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, let's unpack this. First of all, why is he talking about idolatry? I thought we were talking about idol meat. I thought we were just talking about what you can and can't eat. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about adiaphora issues, and we've talked about the marketplaces in Corinth. What is going on here? What is happening is that Paul is using the fact that people are eating idol meat in a pagan temple, which would actually be committing idolatry, as a launching pad to talk about idolatry. Here's what we talked about. In the ancient world, if you went to worship the pagan gods, you would bring a sacrifice. But because you probably cannot eat a whole bull by yourself, you would have to then do something with that meat. And they would sell it in kind of their version of, you know, a yield Walmart or whatever in the marketplace. And you could go buy idol meat and you could take it home and have a delicious steak. And the question has come up in Corinth, can Christians eat this meat that's been used in this pagan ritual? And Paul's answer is yes, which is, by the way, why Christians can celebrate Halloween. Just because it had a pagan origin doesn't mean that it can't be redeemed. But what he will say is that you cannot actually commit idolatry. You have some Christians not just eating idol meat in the, the marketplace. He's cool with that. You have some actually going to a temple and saying, because there's only one God, if I go worship all these idols, there's no gods behind them, so this is fine. And Paul's going to say, I agree that there are no other gods, but when you worship an idol, it's not that you worship nothing. You worship something demonic. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to say, you are walking in some very serious sin, ideally the sin of idolatry. Okay, now, what is idolatry? Let me explain this because this is really important for a modern context. The Bible condemns idolatry all over the place. Old Testament, New Testament, Ten Commandments, wherever it is, it's condemned over and over and over again. But we have a tendency, because we're Westerners, to think this command doesn't really apply to me. Never in my life have I bowed down to a metal statue. Never in my life have I bowed down to a wooden statue. Never in my life have I bowed down to a stone statue. What else? What other material? What is it? I've never bowed down to a gold statue. Keep going. So many statues I've never bowed down to. We could just keep naming materials. Never in my life have I bowed down to a statue. And so we have a tendency to think these are the sins the Israelites committed. These are the sins that people like in a Hindu country would commit. But we don't commit idolatry that much today. We're not tempted to bow down to idols. And so here's what you need to understand. An idol is not merely this figurine that you bow down before. An idol is anything in your life other than God that you make ultimate. That's a good definition of an idol. As anything in your life that you make 
ultimate. It doesn't even have to be a bad thing. It can be a good thing that you make ultimate, and then it becomes an idol. Idolatry is where you love something as much or more than God. It's where you find your joy in something other than Christ. And this is not just me giving you some theology. I want to show you an interesting text about idolatry in Colossians 3.5. Listen to this. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Now look at this next phrase. And covetousness, which is idolatry. What the text is saying is instead of finding your joy in Christ, when you want something that somebody else has in coveting, You want their spouse, you want their money, you want their job, you want their influence. That's what will make me happy. When you think like that, the Bible explicitly here says that is idolatry. Now, why in this command not to commit idolatry, which we all do, does he quote the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play? I would have said, as it is written, you shall have no other gods before me. Or I would have told some other story about Israel being exiled because of their idolatry. Why does he choose This passage from Exodus 32, the golden calf incident, and use this language of eating and drinking. And the answer is because that is the very same sin that the Corinthians are committing. So think back to the story where Israel is brought out of Egypt, and as Moses is like coming down with the the tablets, Israel is already committing idolatry. They're basically cheating on God on their wedding night, and so they make this golden calf, and they say, this is Yahweh. This is the God that delivered us out of Egypt. And what do they do as part of that pagan, idolatrous worship? They eat and drink in honor of this idol. And so this is a perfect passage for Paul to use to say, in the same way the Israelites were eating in honor of this false god, you Corinthians are going to the temple and you're doing the same thing. Now, furthermore, look at this last part of this phrase here. This is confusing to a lot of people. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That sounds so innocent. Like they rose up to play horseshoes. Isn't this what we do when we have our parkway picnic? We eat and drink and we rise up to play. That's what it sounds like. That is not the connotation of what's going on here. This has, this has a connotation of sexual play. Literally, it's that they're having an orgy. That's what you would do in the ancient world. You would offer a sacrifice to the gods, and then you would partake in sexual immorality. Why? Because that would arouse the gods, and therefore they would make things more fertile. That would cause them to have crops and rain and all these kind of things. And so that's what they're doing. One translator translates this as they got up to have a romp. Another translates it as they were having a virtual orgy. You see here something very interesting, which is that idolatry in the Bible, false religion. Let me say it this way. Religion and sex are always linked. If you get religion off, you'll also be off on the area of sex. Okay? So the biblical view of sex, that it's one man and one woman in marriage, that's when you're worshiping God rightly. That is what sex should look like. When you get polytheism, which is a false worship of many gods, then you have many sexual partners. Then you sleep with someone before you're married. Then you have a mistress, whatever it might be. In Romans 1, the sin that's used to describe idolatry is homosexuality. Notice when your religion's off, Sex is off as well. Why is homosexuality used in Romans 1 to talk about idolatry? Because it's the perfect example of idolatry. True religion is where I as a creature want something that's other, creator, God. I want something different. So when instead we worship an idol, we worship the same thing, creatures, that is why a man will be want to be with a man or a woman will want to be with a woman. We want what's same. We don't want what's other. We don't want what's different. When our theology is off, sex will be off as well. When cults and false religions are started, whether it's Islam or Mormonism or whatever they do, they institute polygamy and they institute these other sexually immoral practices. Your religion is linked to your view of sex 
And those two, if, if one gets off, the other one is going to be off. And so you see that here as they're committing idolatry, they are also, in a sense, committing adultery, cheating on God. That's why the prophets will constantly link idolatry to adultery. When your religion is off, sex will be off as well. So with that in mind, I want to ask some questions Don't write these down. There's going to be too many of them. If you want them, send me an email so that we can expose some idols in our heart, okay? So we can expose some idols in our heart. Let me read a few of these. Ask yourself these questions. What do I worry about the most? What do I worry about the most? What, if I failed at it or lost it, would cause me to not want to live? That'd be a great indicator of where there's idols in your heart. Most of our idols today are not metal. They're mental. They're internal, not external. What do I use to comfort myself when things are difficult? That's a good question. Now, not all comforts are idolatrous. God has made wine to make men's hearts glad. God has given you a spouse to be intimate with, okay? And so God has given you these good comforts. Good food is supposed to make you feel better when you're not doing well. But it's when you make those things ultimate, where they're your ultimate comfort, not Christ, but those things that they become an idol. What do I use to cope with life? What are my release valves? What do I do to feel better? What preoccupies me? What do I daydream about? What makes me feel the most self-worth? What am I the proudest of? What do I want to be known for? What do I lead with in conversations? What do I want to make sure that people know about me fairly early on? What prayer, unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? What do I really want and expect out of life? What would really make me happy? What is my hope for the future? What do I have a tendency to lie about? What is the one thing in my life that if it were different, life would be perfect? You see, as I ask these questions, there's probably something going on in your heart where you're like, oh man, there's a bunch of these things. That's right. That's because we are idolaters. That's what sinners do. As Calvin would say, the human heart is a constant factory of idols. We don't really conquer idolatry. We just shift our idols. We stop loving this thing too much, and then we just love something else too much instead. And the good news here is that the Bible is going to give a warning so that we might repent, so that the same thing doesn't happen to us that happened to Israel. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Okay, let's back up and do a quick biblical sexual ethic. What is sexual morality and what is okay? In the Bible, it's very, very simple of what is okay and what is not when it comes to the area of sex. This is something our culture does not understand, so let me just break it down for you. Within a monogamous and heterosexual marriage where you have a born biological man and a born biological woman, and they get married, what rest of the world history just called marriage, that's what I mean when I say marriage, sex within that is good. It's righteous. It's God-glorifying. God is the one that invented sex. We didn't invent it. That wasn't like Adam and Eve's idea when God wasn't looking. God is the one that invented this. And so that's a good thing. We need to realize that sex within marriage is supposed to be fun, exciting, adventurous. It's good. Sometimes Christians are uncomfortable when they talk about that. One of my uh, former pastors, a guy named Tommy Nelson over at Denton Bible, was preaching through Song of Solomon, which is basically a book of Hebrew erotica. Jewish boys were not allowed to read it until they reached a certain age. Can you imagine your parents telling you not to read the Bible? You're not old enough yet. And so he was preaching through it, and it's very explicit at some parts. And he said something very explicit, and everybody got uncomfortable, and he said, that's why I like preaching this text to little old Baptist ladies. I just sit there and watch them sweat. It's great, okay? 
So we don't need to be ashamed of that. Now, anything outside of that is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. Within marriage, good. Anything outside of that, including lustful thoughts, the Bible calls porneia is the term. That's the term for sexual immorality, porneia. Okay? Porneia is a junk drawer term for anything that is outside of a monogamous and heterosexual marriage. Anything else is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography. It is a graphe in Greek, a picture of porneia. A prostitute in Greek is the word pornos. All these terms are linked. And so what the Bible is going to do is it is going to warn us against sexual immorality. And it's going to give us a story. You might have been familiar with the golden calf story. You're probably not as familiar with this story. It's going to give us a story out of the book of Numbers, Numbers 25, 1 through 9. Here's what's going on. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. Again, notice that adultery and whoring are linked to idolatry. Again, same thing. When your religion's off, your sex is off. Number two, verse two. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman, a pagan, a non-covenant member of Israel, brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses, in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. He's brash with his sin. He's blatant with it. He doesn't care. Everyone can see the sin he's committing. While they were weeping in the entrance to the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So what's happening is they're committing idolatry. And when you commit idolatry, when your heart is not loving God as the highest thing, you will commit sexual immorality. And so this man in front of everyone takes this Midianite woman, and probably while they're in the throes of intercourse, Phineas comes in there with a spear and makes a people kebab. And God's wrath is then turned away, but because of Israel's sin, 23 to 24,000 died. Now why does the Old Testament text say 24,000? And why does Paul say 23,000? Is it because there's all these contradictions in the Bible and we should just throw out revealed religion and just all be atheists? No, here's what's happening. Paul is not trying to be overly specific. It's not as though God only kills in round numbers, right? It's not as though like 23,001 didn't die or 23,999. They're both just giving summaries. If I tell you that I live five miles from the church, and I tell somebody else that I live 4.8 miles from the church. Have I lied in either of those statements? No, I'm not trying to be overly precise. The whole point that the author of Numbers is making and that Paul is making is we committed sexual immorality, and so God killed a whole bunch of people. That's the point that they are trying to make, that God is serious when it comes to this. There are certain sins that only some people struggle with but not others. Drunkenness is a good example. That's something that some people struggle with, but other Christians don't struggle with drunkenness at all, okay? Homosexuality. Some Christians struggle with that, whereas others don't. But there are certain sins that are pretty ubiquitous. Idolatry is something that I would say that everybody is going to struggle with. 
Sexual immorality, if you're an adult, I would say that everyone has struggled with that at some point, especially because the Bible commands our thought life. I've never met a woman who's not at least had wishing and thoughts that she had married somebody else, that she had had a different husband, had lustful thoughts. I've never met a man that's never at least had lustful thoughts, if not more, right? And so these sins are pretty ubiquitous. We'll see that as we keep going. So I want to ask some questions on this as well. Let me ask these questions. Are you doing anything sexual with someone who is not your spouse? Are you looking at pornography? Are you looking at lustful images online, even if they're not fully nude, some sort of Sports Illustrated swimsuit kind of thing? Do you check out women, or men if you're a woman, when they walk by? Do you sexually fantasize about someone other than your spouse? If you are married, are you being flirtatious with somebody who's not your spouse? Maybe a secretary, maybe a neighbor, maybe someone at the gym. During sex, do you pretend or imagine that your spouse is somebody else? Where do you need to repent of sexual immorality? This is one of those sins that hits all of us to some degree. And for some of us, it can be very, very subtle. I'll tell you a story of a a couple that I was ministering to at another church. They sat down in my office for some marriage counseling. And I said, what's the deal? Tell me what's going on. And the wife said, I keep catching my husband checking out other women when they walk by. Now, that's sin. It's common. Doesn't mean it's okay. It's sin. And I expected him to say something like, honey, you're right, I'm a sinner, I'm sorry, forgive me, I will work on averting my eyes. But I asked him, I said, are you doing that? And he said, oh yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. And I was like, okay, Uh, can you unpack that a little for me? Because it sounds like you just don't care. He said, what's happening is I'm not looking at them lustfully. I'm just looking at, if a woman is objectively beautiful and I just appreciate her beauty, this is what he said, it's the same as if I was looking at a sunset or if I was looking at a mountain, or I was looking at something that's just objectively beautiful. I'm not looking at her body parts. I'm not checking her out. I'm just checking out her beauty. She's just objectively beautiful. I just realized that God has made a beautiful woman. Now, I instantly realized, this sounds like you're trying to justify your sin. Because that's what we do. When people confront us, we don't instantly want to repent. We want to defend ourselves. And so I said, okay, so you're saying that when a beautiful woman walks by, you're just recognizing that she's objectively beautiful, but there's nothing sexual about it, right? He said, right. And I said, you do that with other things too. Mountains, sunsets, right? And he said, right. And I said, okay, then that would mean that when there's a handsome man, you also stop and recognize how God has made him objectively handsome. Do you do that? And he goes, well, no. And I'm like, gotcha. (laughs) Do you know why you think that the woman is beautiful and you want to look at her, but you don't the man? And it's not just objective, but it's also sexual? Because you're attracted to women. That's what our heart does, though, on this issue. We want to find ways to say this is okay. God's not really serious. We don't don't want to be like J.D. Greer who said that God whispers on the areas of sexual sin, which is ridiculous. God screams about it. He just killed thousands of people for it. It's a very, very big deal. Verses 9 through 10. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, before I unpack that, I want you to see something really powerful here. We must not put who to the test as they did. What's the word that's given? Christ. Do you see there's a reference here to the eternal deity of Jesus? The text just said that the God that led Israel out of Egypt is Christ. The God that saved the Israelites in the Old Testament is Christ. It doesn't just use the generic term here for Lord. He is saying that Jesus is the one God of the Old Testament and has always been. God is a trinity. It's a very interesting passage because he uses this word Christ. And they said that the Israelites put Christ to the test. 
Very interesting thing. What we see, though, here is another one of those sins that's kind of on God's I especially hate this list. I'll give you an example. There are a lot of things I hate. I'm a big hater. My spiritual gift is being able to point out flaws of others. It's, it's in there. So it's in 1 Corinthians. We'll get to it when we get to the gifts. That one's in there. There's a few things that I especially hate, though. Let me share these with you. First of all, taking off my shoes when I go into somebody else's house. Now, let me say this real quick. I don't think anybody here has asked me to do that, but if you have, I'm so sorry. Like, if you have, I'm not using the pulpit to try to, like, shame you. I don't remember if you did that. But generally, if I go into somebody's house and they ask me to take my shoes on, I'm like, hey, can, how about we just all keep all our clothes on? <laughs> like, all the clothes I came in with, I'll keep those on. You keep your clothes on. Let's just do that. I don't want to counsel you in my socks. So this is something that I especially hate. Another thing, when I text somebody that I thought was a friend, but the text bubble turns green instead of blue right? I, I always think, we're friends. We're, we're the same. Beep, and then it comes up blue, and my emoji gets all jacked up, and I think, would you just conform? Eventually, you're going to lose. Apple is taking over, okay? Just conform now. Bow the knee so that I can send you my gifs. I also hate the phrase, get the creative juices flowing. Just sounds weird to me. Let's just leave again the creative juices alone. Let's just be creative. Let's be creative, a thing I hate. Here's another one. School zones for older kids. I totally get school zones for elementary school kids. That's totally fine. But for middle school and high school kids, kids that are already driving, if you can't make it out of high school without getting hit by a car, walking across the street, then we just need to let that small element of natural selection happen. <laughs> kind of let the gene pool take care of itself. So the idea of school zones for older kids is ridiculous. I'll give you a few more things that I hate. People who have their phone on speaker in a public place. I, if I see that, if you're on a bus, they're watching a movie at a table next to me at a restaurant, I just go down and I just take a knee. And I say, I'm sorry, I thought you were God because you think the world revolves around you. I hate it. I hate it. Listen to your own stuff in your earbuds. I'm starting to sound more like an old man. That last one was kind of get off my lawnish, you know. And then lastly, when someone parks over the line in a crowded parking lot. Right? It's crowded and they've parked over the line because it's about them. Now, this isn't in the Bible, what I'm about to say, but it should be. There's a special place in hell for people like that, okay, that park over the line in a crowded thing. Now, I give you this little list, one, to keep you awake, but two, because in the Bible, God hates all sin. But it is the case that he does treat some sins as more grievous. We actually have a blog about this, that all sins are not equal. They're all equal in the sense that they make you a sinner, but some sins are more egregious. Some sins are more offensive to God. And on that list, he has things like pride. He has things like idolatry. He has things like sexual morality. But one of the things that God has on his short list of things that he hates is something that we don't think about much, and it's this, grumbling and testing him. It's very subtle, but it's there, grumbling and testing him. Let's start here. First of all, what does it mean to test God? You already know if you have a child because your child tests you. It's where you think that... So, so if you have a kid and you say, do not touch the electrical socket, do they just say... I was born without sin, Daddy. Pelagius was right. I will not touch it. No. What do they do? You look at them, and you say, don't touch the electrical socket, and they go. And they look at you, and you say, don't touch the electrical socket. And they get close to it, and they look at you. Don't touch it. They put their hand by it. Don't touch it. And they touch it right as they stare at you. What are they doing in that moment? Here's what they're doing. They're trying to call your bluff. That's what it means to test God, to act as though he's not God and that you can sin against him and that you will not get hit. 
That's what it means to test God. That's specifically what the Israelites are doing. This idea of testing, a big place that this comes up in the Old Testament is at a place called Massah, which means testing in Hebrew. And it's where God's already led the Israelites out of Egypt. You would think after they've seen the, the, the sea parted and they've seen the miracles and all of that, they would trust God, but they don't. They get out there and they're like, we're thirsty and we're going to die because we're thirsty. And they start testing God. God provides for them, but he rebukes them because of their testing of him. Testing God is where you are calling God a liar and you sin against him and you think that you're secure. It's where you forget that God is creator and your creation. Numbers again, 21, 4 through 9. From Mount Har, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We're just kidding. We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look upon the bronze serpent, or I'm sorry, serpent, and live. That's the story where he's talking about being killed by serpents because of their testing of God. By the way, as a side note, for some of my Reformed and Presbyterian friends who think it's wrong to have a picture of Jesus or it's wrong to have statues, notice that Moses made a statue. They were commanded not to make any graven images of anything on heaven and earth, and yet he made one. He's not sinning because God's command is not to make those things to worship them, not that Christians can't do art. Notice this other thing. I've put these two together because they go together, testing God and grumbling. Okay? Before I do, I want to give you an interesting quote from a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann. He says this, Presumption is the premature, self-willed anticipation of what we hope from God, Despair is the premature, arbitrary anticipation of non-fulfillment. That sounds technical. Here's what he's trying to say when it comes to testing God. Testing God is where you either presume upon God, that he needs to give you deliverance now, and he needs to give you everything you want now, and you, he, you, you just think that life should go well and that God has somehow deceived you, or it's despair thinking that he won't be faithful. When you fall into despair and you think, I have no hope, that is a form of testing God. Okay? You're saying, God, you are a liar. You're doing the same thing the Israelites did. I know that you've gotten me this far, God, but you won't keep staying with me. You'll drop me at the end. You'll fumble me at the, uh, at the goal line. Now, he mentions grumbling here as well. Notice the grumbling and complaining against God. And he says, when the Israelites did that, God sent the destroyer. Now, what is the destroyer? That sounds like a WWE wrestler name or something. What is the destroyer? I don't have one specific text that Paul is referencing here because I'm not sure which one he's referencing. There are a lot of passages where God judges Israel through an angel, through plague, which is often associated with an angel, etc. The destroyer is this Old Testament character, which is this angel that God has charged with judging people. If you think of the angel of death from the story with Moses in Egypt, That is the destroying angel. That is the destroyer. And sometimes he's sent to judge Israel. Sometimes the way he's equated with plague. When God gives plague or God gives pandemic or whatever it is, sometimes it's equated with his judgment against those who are his people who are rebelling. So we don't know exactly what text he's referencing, but his point is still the same. Don't test God because God killed people. Don't grumble and complain against God because God killed people. God is very serious about sin. 
He's so, so, so gracious. And he's so, so, so serious about judging sin. And both are true at the same time. So let me ask you these questions. Where do you grumble against God? Where do you not like the decisions he makes for your life? Where do you think God has wronged you? You realize if you're mad at God, the problem's never God. The problem is always you misperceiving God. Where do you doubt that he will be faithful to his promises because you don't see them now? Where do you think that you are a victim and God is your oppressor? What causes you to get stressed out because you don't trust God? What do you complain about? What sin are you walking in that you think he won't discipline? Where are you touching the electric socket in your life? Verses 11 through 12. Now these things happen to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Let's look at the first part of that. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Just a quick note here. A few weeks ago, I said that Christians are no longer under the binding jurisdiction of the Mosaic Law. That there is this part in the Old Testament that was given to Israel for a time. It's not God's universal heart for humanity, but given to Israel for a time. However, now I want to say something from the other side. That doesn't mean that we throw out our Old Testament, and it doesn't mean we throw out the Mosaic Law. The Bible just said that in the Old Testament, God has given a ton of things for Christians. The Old Testament is still God's word in the scriptures, including the Mosaic Law. We learn about who God is. We learn about holiness. We learn about the promise of a Messiah. We learn about these different things. And the Bible just said you also learn something else. God has given you these Bible stories, not for you to just sing about when you're a kid, right? Like how we all grew up. David's this cool little guy who's like super sick with a slingshot, you know. And Moses is this guy and he's got a cool wizard staff and he can do tricks. That's the kind of stuff we heard growing up. Paul is saying, no, 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 those stories were written down not just because God was doing something with Israel. They were written down for your instruction. They became the concubine whose head was cut off, so yours doesn't have to be. It's a strong warning here. New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says this, behind all these things, meaning these examples in the Old Testament, lies the eternal purposes of the living God, who knows the end from the beginning and who therefore has himself woven the preferment into these earlier texts for the sake of his final eschatological people. Also notice this, if you grew up dispensational, Bible church, Baptist, left behind series, notice what he calls Corinthians who are living 2,000 years ago, the people on whom the end of the ages has come. So if you're thinking, Zach, do we live in the end times now? The reason you're asking that is because you don't have a biblical worldview, you have an American worldview. You think the economy's awful, we have a border crisis, we have Afghanistan crisis, we have COVID, we must be in the end. Yes, we're one day closer than we were yesterday, I'll give you that. But Paul says that we've been in the end times for 2,000 years. He says to the Corinthians, these things were written to you guys because you guys live in the end times 2,000 years ago. Remember, the end times is what happens when people like Jesus start getting up out of the grave. That's the beginning of the end times. Not just what we think it is today with pictures of burning tanks and an Israeli flag on a TV show or something. Okay. Next, he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. This is the point of the entire sermon. Let it, let, uh, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. So if you say, if you're somebody who's walking in unrepentant sin, we all struggle with sin, we all struggle with it all the time, okay? But unrepentant sin is where you stop fighting it. You don't care. You just let it take possession of you. The Bible's gonna say if you're doing that, you should be scared and you should have an anticipation of God's judgment. If you say, but Zach, I'm part of God's people. So were the Israelites that were judged. But God, I'm baptized. 
so were they in a sense, into Moses through the sea. That's what Paul's going to say that he said last week. But Zach, I take communion. So did they. They had spiritual food and spiritual drink. But Zach, I've, got seen, I've seen God do miraculous things. So did they. But Zach, I know that God's done a work in my life. So did they. None of those gives you the security. The evidence of regeneration is repentance. That is the evidence of regeneration. It's not that you don't sin. It's that your heart towards sin has grown a little bit more distasteful than when you were lost. Now, there's two sides. When I say that, beware if you think you stand lest you fall. There's one of two kinds of people in here, and this will hit you different ways, so let me address both of these. If you are somebody who hears that and it causes anxiety in you, you're somebody who thinks, but Zach, I love God. I I don't want to be condemned. I, I, I know I'm saved, but I struggle with sin. Is this text saying that I can't have assurance? Is this text saying that I don't know whether or not I'm saved? It is not saying that because this text is not written to you. If you're somebody struggling with sin, but you're fighting it, you're repentant, you love Christ, and more importantly, he loves you, that's not Paul's audience. That's not who's addressing. Don't let this text take away the security that you have. There's a scary passage people quote from Matthew, but they usually don't quote all of it. And it's where Jesus says that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and do all these mighty miracles in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. But here's what he goes on to say, and everybody didn't quote this. You should quote it. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you practicers of wickedness. It's not that you get to the gates to be judged by God. I don't know that there's actually gates like that, but you get the point. It's not as though you get to the gates to be judged by God, and you're like, sorry. I, I, you thought you were a Christian, but you're not. See you later. Hop on the elevator. That's not what's happening. <laughs> Rather, you know. You know where you're going when you die based on whether or not the Spirit's transformed your life. And so it's not just many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and Jesus is like, sorry, you got tricked. That's not the point. The people that he says, I never knew you, and notice he doesn't say, I knew you and I lost you. He says, I never knew you. And he calls them workers of lawlessness, meaning they were never converted. They never had a real life change. That is not who this text is written to. So take a breath, go home, sleep like a Calvinist. For the rest of you, though, there's a few of you, though, not the rest, a few of you, that think because you think you're a Christian, you're walking in idolatry, you're walking in sexual immorality, you're walking in grumbling and complaining, you're walking in some sort of sin, and you think, I'm secure. I go to church, I've been baptized, I'm part of the people of God. And this text would say, so is Israel that God judged. This is a word of warning to you, those of you in unrepentant sin. Now, how do we in the Christian life wrestle with this? When we see sin in our heart, how do we wrestle with it? Because on the one hand, we can just become so morbidly introspective, so navel-gazing, that we just always look at how bad we are, which leads to a ton of despair. But on the other hand, we don't want to be like the Corinthians where we're going to temple prostitutes and committing idolatry, and we just don't care. What does a healthy spiritual checkup look like in the Christian life? I'll give you an example. I heard this from a former pastor of mine. I thought it was an excellent example. Imagine that there's a four-year-old kid and they're playing in the front yard with a ball, okay? They're having fun playing in the front yard with a ball, and that kid's dad has given them one rule. Don't go in the street. The street is dangerous. You're four. Cars can't see you. Don't go. You can go anywhere in the yard you want. You can have fun. I want you to have a ton of fun, but do not go in the street. Even if your ball goes in the street, don't go in the street, okay? Now, that kid can respond in one of two really terrible ways. One, they can just run into the street, Guns blazing, who cares what dad says, and they can get hit by a car. You don't want to be on that side. 
But on the other side, you don't want your kid to set the ball down and just hunker down and be like, I sure hope my ball doesn't go into the street. I'm so terrified. Uh, cars are scary. They're really big. I could get hit. My dad said I could get hit, so I'm terrified. You don't want that either. What you want is this, for the kid to not be thinking about the street. He's playing with the ball. He's having fun in the yard. When does he think about the street? Why he's having fun? No, he's not thinking about the street at all. He's having fun, enjoying playing in the yard. Here's when he thinks about the street. When the ball bounces off his foot and goes out to the street. So he runs up to the curb and something hits him where he goes, wait a second, I'm not supposed to go out into the street. My dad was really clear. I wasn't thinking about danger, but now that I see that I'm on the edge here, now I'm thinking about the danger. Dad, will you go get my ball? That's the Christian life. That's what the Christian life should be. It's not we walk in unrepentant sin and we run around in the street, nor are we so hunched over like many of the Puritans were where they're just focused on self more than God. Rather, we're having fun. God loves us. We're saved. We're secure. Nobody can snatch us out of his hand. He's given us this awesome Jesus ball. We're playing with it. Everything's great. And then we see that we're starting to walk in sin and we say, wait a second. We're not supposed to be in the street. God has been very clear that we're not supposed to do this. How do I get myself out of it? Daddy, will you get the ball? I, I'm not supposed to, will you help me? Bring me back in the yard. That's the example of what the Christian life should look like. On the one hand, it's not that we never do a spiritual checkup. We need to see when there's sin in our heart and we need to repent. But it's also not that we only do spiritual checkups so that we're not actually focused on Christ. We're just focused on how awful we are. And by the way, we're awful. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Look at that first part. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Let me just tell you why this is an encouragement. So many of us struggle with certain sins that we think that nobody else understands. We struggle with sins that we think are just really weird. So if you're anxious about certain things and you tell people what you're anxious about, they'll be like, that's really weird that you're anxious about that. Like literally an acme anvil is going to fall on your head like a cartoon. You don't need to be anxious about that. Or the things that maybe you're sexually tempted to, some people will think are weird. Whatever it might be, there's all sins that we have that we think nobody else understands. And here's what the Bible's going to say. Every sin you struggle with or every sin you're tempted towards, somebody else is struggling towards the same thing. You're not unique in your sin. Everybody sins weird to somebody else, but we are not unique in our sin. Before whatever you are tempted towards, Somebody else has already been tempted towards it. So you're not unique in this. God's commands apply to you regardless of how unique your struggle is. And he goes on to say this. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. A few things that we need to see because verse 13 is really powerful. The first, look at that phrase, God is faithful. Your only hope is not that you can do it good enough. Your only hope is that God is faithful. Your hope is not that you're faithful. Your hope is not that you won't sin. Your hope is not that you won't be tempted. The only security that you have is that God is God, that God is faithful, that God is the one who's sworn to preserve you, and if he doesn't, he's a liar. It's a very encouraging thing to hear. Now, this text is telling us that we can resist sin, so let's go over a few clarifiers here. Can the Christian, this side of eternity, fully conquer sin, yes or no? The answer is no. It's already conquered in a sense in God's eyes because Christ has atoned for our sin. But in our practical day-to-day -day lives, we will not fully conquer sin this side of eternity. However, can we conquer individual acts of sin during the week? Yes. So is a Christian ever completely out from the realm of sin until we die? No. But can we conquer individual acts of sin? Yes. 
And in fact, can we grow in certain sins where we started out very anxious and several years later we're not? Where we started out very lustful and several years later we're not? Where we started out, you know, constantly drunk and then several years we're not? Sure, we, we never fully conquer capital S sin this side of eternity. But we can grow in holiness and we can conquer individual acts of sin. So can I just ever not be proud again? No. Can I just ever not be fearful again? No. But for any individual sin that pops itself up in the middle of the week and says, you must commit me, the Christian has the ability to say, I don't have to do that. Because I have the Spirit, I don't have to commit that individual act of sin. So to say it another way, can the Christian totally avoid all sin? No. But can the Christian avoid individual acts of sin? Yes. Do Christians believe in addiction? Yes, we do. Do Christians believe in irresistible addiction? We do not. Because you have the Spirit. So here's what you need to understand. If you feel like there is some sin that you're struggling with and it owns you, you're a slave to it, you must obey it, you are believing a lie. You're believing a lie. Let me give you a speech that I give to a lot of young men who are addicted to pornography, but this applies whether your addiction is that, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, whether it's body image issues, whether it's whatever it is. Let me give you the speech that I give them. So I'll be meeting with a young man, and he'll tell, confess that he's looking at pornography. And I say, okay, are you a Christian? We talk through whether or not he's a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. And I say, then why are you looking at this? And he says, because I can't get away from it. I can't not look at it. And so what I have to say is, here's what I'm hearing you say. You're enslaved. You're waiting for God to deliver you from this sin. Here's what's amazing, though, biblically. You're not waiting for God to free you from that sin. He already freed you at your conversion. You're carrying around broken chains. That feeling of slavery is a false feeling, according to this text. This text is extremely clear that you have the ability, by the Spirit, to resist these individual acts of sin. So the issue is not that you're enslaved. Listen, the issue is that you think you're enslaved, but you're not. You have already been set free from your anxiety at your conversion. You've already been set free from your lust at your conversion. You've already been set free from your body image idolatry at your conversion. You've already been set free from your greed at your conversion. You are carrying around broken chains, and here's the reason, because you want to. You are not a victim. You want to commit this sin because you think, it, whatever that sin is, you think that sin will bring you more joy than Jesus. That's the real issue. It's not that you want to be free and God hasn't given you grace. He's given you grace. You don't want to be free because at the end of the day, you still like your sin more than Jesus because you think it's more beautiful than Jesus. You don't really want to be free from your anxiety. You like the control. You don't really want to be free from your lust. You like the excitement. You don't want to really be free from whatever it is that you struggle with. There's part of you that likes it. Part of it is Stockholm Syndrome. We love the evil things that enslave us. And the only solution is to realize two things. One, Jesus is better. He loves you even when you don't love him. And the other thing is all the feelings you have that I can't get out of this, I must commit this sin, are lies. That's why the Bible has to say this. This doesn't feel right. It feels like if you're stuck in some sin, you must commit it. I'm trying, but I can't. I'm going to lose. This text says that type of thinking is false. One more thing to notice here. Notice this phrase that you may be able to endure it. Meaning, God often won't take away the temptation. Rather, he gives you the strength to resist it. So if you're tempted to be anxious and fearful, it's not the case that you're just going to like wake up one day and you're no longer anxious. God's going to still let the temptations happen. You're going to read stuff in the news and you're going to want to stress out for the next two hours. It's not as though you just wake up one day and God's just taken away any temptation to lust. 
Rather, they're going to be put in situations and opportunities where you can look away or you can look toward, and God will make you practice being free. God will not prevent the temptation from happening, though God is not the one tempting you. The Bible is clear on that. He will not prevent the temptation from happening. Rather, he gives you the strength by the Holy Spirit to be able to stand up underneath it. To quote Martin Luther, or at least a quote that's attributed to Luther. I'd have to see if he really said it. There's a lot of pseudepigraphal stuff out there. You can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. Meaning, the thought is going to hit you. The lustful thought, the anxious thought, the proud thought, the if I had more money, I'd be happy thought, the if I married somebody else, I'd be happy thought. That thought is going to hit you. You can't keep the thought from hitting you. What you can do, though, in that moment is decide, I'm either going to dwell on this thought or I'm going to shoo that bird away so that it doesn't make a nest in my hair. So I want to end with this. What do we do with a text like this? Because for somebody like me, this causes a lot of stress. I'm already somebody that wrestles with assurance of salvation. I'm already somebody that has a bunch of doubts. And now you tell me, Zach, if you commit all these sins that all of us commit, there's the wrath of God waiting for you. I'm like, great, I think I'll become a Muslim now or something. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with these kind of texts. Here's what you need to understand, and it's that we have something that Israel didn't have yet. Do you know what that is? The incarnated Son of God dying on a cross for our sins and being resurrected. They were looking forward to it. They were looking forward to it. We have one who has been crushed for our idolatries, who has never committed idolatry. We have somebody who has been spat upon and whipped because of our sexual immorality that has never committed sexual immorality. We have one that didn't grumble and complain against God, but rather for the joy set before him endured the cross. Our only hope is that we have a merciful God. Our only hope is this line here in verse 13 where it says that God is faithful. God must do the stuff. He must do the stuff in salvation. He must do the stuff in sanctification. He must do the stuff in keeping us. We don't do the stuff. God must do it or else we're toast. So my encouragement to you is this. Don't go home and just try to be better on these sins. I think some of you will get in your car and think, okay, I want to be less idolatrous. Good luck. I want to be less lustful. Good luck. I want to be less complaining and grumbling and thinking that I'd be a better God than God. Good luck. Rather, my hope is that you would go home and you would say, how good is a God that saved me anyway? How good is a God who poured out his wrath on Christ so that it doesn't have to be poured out on me? How good is a God that when I commit idolatry, he still loves me? How good is a God that when I commit sexual immorality, he still loves me? How good is a God when I test him, when I provoke him, when I grumble against him, loves me anyway? The only way you will conquer sin is by loving God more, and the only way you'll love God more is by realizing that he loves you first. It all starts with him. It all starts with him. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. Dear God, we thank you for this text, difficult though it is. We thank you that you have not uh, sugarcoated it, that you haven't made it PC, that you've just said some difficult things. I pray that you would encourage us. I know that there are people in here who hear a sermon like this and they're stressed. I pray that you would speak grace to their heart, that they might know that, that anybody that comes to the Son, he'll by no means cast down, that nobody can snatch us from your hand, that he who began a good work in us will be sure to complete it. But I pray for those in here who might be walking in unrepentant sin, and they just don't think it's sin, they don't care that it's sin, whatever, would you just give them grace? I even ask in this prayer that you wouldn't punish them, that you wouldn't discipline them, that you would just win them over by your mercy, that they wouldn't have to be hurt before they let go of this. They would just see that you're better and let go of whatever they're holding on to. We love you and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen.